Welcome to the Future of Coding. Today we have Glenn Kiakieri on the podcast. Glenn has a resume that many listeners will be very familiar with. He has worked at the MIT Media Lab on Scratch and at Dynamic Land with Brett Victor. He's known in these programming research circles for his legible mathematics essay, his flow sheets, programming prototypes, and the laser socks game, among many other projects. So welcome, Glenn. Thanks, Steve. It's good to be here. Yeah, it's awesome to have you. So I like to start these conversations off um, by talking about your kind of origin story, how you got into programming and specifically this subfield of improving programming. Yeah, I got very lucky. Feels important to acknowledge that first. Um, so in college, I went to Northeastern University for a degree in what eventually became computer engineering, although I kind of made my own software engineering degree out of that. And in that program, there's a kind of co-op program where you go to work for a company for six months, then go back to classes, then go work for possibly another company, and then go back to classes. And there's usually three of those. I only did two, and I did them at the same company, which was a startup um, with a kind of like, there's a freight logistics startup called Open Mile. And I actually learned a program on the job there, which was the lucky part. I was not qualified for that job, but I learned it all very quickly. And that was my first real foray into programming. And then over the years, I got more and more interested in kind of the act of programming itself. So how I was doing this thing that I was doing and getting more and more like, wait, how how is this? What is actually going on here? Why? Why is why am I making mistakes? Like, what's what is all this? That makes sense. So, what? Um, who was who, who or what was like your first entry point into this way of thinking? Was it like Alan Kay or Seymour Papert or Brett Victor? Because I know you know you're one of the people who's interested in all of all of those folks. Yeah, it was it was totally Brett Victor. Uh, his the first thing I saw from him was um, Magic Ink, his essay on design while I was working at that startup, someone showed it to me and my mind was blown as tends to happen when you read or watch things by Brett Victor. And then I got more into his work. And I think shortly after that, he came out with Inventing on Principle, which had a lot of the, I think, core tenets of what I saw or what I currently see as important in programming environments. It's interesting. You're um, like an OG Brett Victor fan. You're pre-inventing on principle. <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that what OG is? Well, I, I think um, like a lot, like Chris Granger, and um, I was reading an article that said that John Resig, a lot of a lot of the, the people who were really inspired by Brett Victor, I think, were inspired by inventing on principle. So, uh, I, so you predate those guys. I I still think Magic Inc. is an amazing statement and it, to me it was important uh, about how to communicate well and I think that's kind of an underlying thing in Brett's uh, body of work that maybe isn't totally appreciated is that he is probably one of the better communicators using media that I've ever come across in my entire life. And so that essay for me is like captures the very important thing about how to communicate well and like, okay, examining, you know, what a software experience is actually trying to provide for someone and then saying, why not just do that? 
like kind of directly instead of this like interactive thing that uh, at the time I think was more prevalent than it is today. There was a lot more kind of interactive like uh, like widgets and boxes and pops up pop ups and things like that. But today I think some of this uh, his principles in that kind of have come more into software actually. Yeah, I remember uh, when I first looked at Magic Inc. and I, I one of the headers of that essay is like interaction considered harmful, something mm-hmm. to that effect. Yeah. And I reacted very negatively to it. I, I felt like I almost wanted to stop reading the essay because it felt like almost anti-technology. Like, what do you mean? Like, of course, interaction is a good thing. Uh, but then when you read it, you're like, oh wow, like like interaction means like dialogue boxes and like clicking, like a lot of clicking, and nobody likes lots of clicking. To your point that a lot of the principles that he talks about in that essay are um, have been incorporated into mainstream interfaces is that uh, he redesigned Amazon's search interface. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, and it just is such an amazing example of the, the power of his principles. And I immediately after I saw that went, you know, recently to um, search on Amazon and see what it looks like today. And it looks so similar to the um, exam to like his redesigned version. So I don't know if they got it from him, but somehow his ideas have found their way into the mainstream. Yeah. And I think part of that essay is quite well received, if I recall correctly. And so I assume it kind of, it actually has sort of permeated out into the people who are designing these apps now. You know, it's like, uh, it's over 10 years later at this point. Um, but I think one thing that Brett does well in that essay is seeing underneath uh, what the kind of core thing that a person wants to get out of using these different interfaces. So for Amazon, it wasn't like the person wasn't trying to click a link or something and see more information. They, they just kind of want to know, is this a good book or is this a good product? And I feel like Brett kind of took that as like, here's the actual thing they're trying to do. Let's design the perfect experience for that or whatever perfect means. Yeah, I, I'm totally with you. I remember whenever I read that essay or reread it, I like immediately after I find myself looking at all my interfaces, like the apps to find movies, the apps to like figure out which train to take, they're like all woefully inadequate. Like it's not helping me to do the thing I'm trying to do. And I want to like, you know, redesign it in, in a magic inky yeah. kind of way. And after I read that, I started actually doing what you just described. <laughs> I I started making like all these prototypes. I like remember seeing a uh Later, when I visited Brett and met him in person, I saw that he had designed a like BART schedule, which was like very Brett victory. It's like on a piece of paper, uh, just like a static. I was like, oh yeah, I gotta like design my own one of these. Like, what is the perfect like Magic Ink style uh, BART uh, subway train schedule uh, like layout that I can quickly get the information that I need if I'm just like running out the door or about to run out the door? Yes. Yeah, so what'd you come up with? Oh, <laughs> well, it's a little hard to describe through audio. <laughs> Got it. Does it look similar? Because I know in Magic Inc., or maybe it was a different essay, he has a BART uh, scheduler thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was that was the software. He won the Apple Design Award for that, I believe. Uh, so did yours look similar to that, or it was kind of a different take? It was a different take. It was mostly just like, here's the schedule for the different days, and here's how like a, a format that you could see at a glance, like when the next train is coming. It was just like a thing to stick on the wall, not like a widget to have on your computer screen. Got it. Got it. 
and it was useful. I got to use it every day. Oh, cool. When I lived in California. Yeah. So um, I know that you're also a big fan of Alan Kay um, to the point where you've started a wiki for a lot, collecting a lot of his work. So I'd be interested to hear kind of um, how you fell into Alan Kay's work and how he's similar and different from Brad and what you find interesting about him. Oh, yeah. There's a whole world in Alan's, I guess in Alan's mind is one way of putting it. Um, the way I get introduced to Alan's work was through Brett. Um, so my at, at one point, I started working with Brett Victor um, directly in his lab, just working with him. And at that point, that, that lab was started by Alan Kay. Um, that was kind of the thing before Dynamic Land, which wasn't extremely public. It's called CDG, the Communications Design Group. And so in the process of working with Brett, I, he just recommended and I found a bunch of different links to Alan's works. Uh, and I, I kind of went down the, the rabbit hole, so to speak. Like whenever I find someone who has really interesting work, I kind of tend to consume it all and like kind of download that person's published work into my mind and then like start churning through it, which I think is a great way to learn. Um, so at that point I started reading all of his different works, which I really enjoyed because a lot, for a long time I saw my, uh, role as a professional, not as a person redesigning programming, it more a person helping people to understand things and programming was one of those. And Alan had a lot to say both about programming, about how the human mind works. And he has a lot of really good ideas and work behind software artifacts supporting human understanding. Yeah, I've heard um, Brett say that people always give Alan Kay credit for being this technologist who, you know, invented like small talk or object-oriented programming, but that like drastically undersells him. Brett says that he's like one of the greatest philosophers of our time. So, like. Could you maybe like give us a kernel of Alan Kane, uh, like w philosophical wisdom to whet our appetites? Oh man, uh, that is a tremendous challenge. I'll <laughs> I'll try and give something though. Um, I would say Alan is not maybe the best philosopher, but one of the best systems systems thinkers of our time. Um, he has a really deep sense of how important it is to be systemic thinkers. And these systems are like our uh, political system, technology systems, um, education systems, uh, you know, systems in lots of different areas. And his vision, I would say, is something like um, a kind of, um, really well-informed democracy. Uh, he, he views democracy, especially like the American democracy, as one of the like shining examples of something that was really hard to invent. And then once we have it, it's really important to hold on to and nourish and give rise to more of these beautiful kind of democratic ideals. 
And specifically, he would like that to happen through education, through people learning what he calls powerful ideas. Um, these ideas that are, you know, not obvious to someone just kind of growing up in a natural environment. Things like scientific thinking or democracy um, or just kind of basic human rights. That's a really weird idea in the span of history. Like most people have not experienced human rights. And so he wants to nourish those through education and having really good educational experiences, especially for children. Yeah, I, I think that's a, I think you did. I, think you did, I gave you a hard uh, prompt to like some, you know, give me some, some kernel of Alan wisdom, but I think that was, that was, a, that was a great summary. And it um, reminded me of something that Brett said to me when, um, when I spoke to him in January. Um, I was talking about how great Scratch is for kids um, and how, because it allows them to do the things that they want to do anyways, like make games and make things dance and music. Um, it, it allows them to do the things they want to do anyways, but learn to code at the same time. And um, Brett's response was that, I don't, I don't remember it exactly, but it's something to do with, he, he referenced the shit crayons essay that, um, that just because kids do creative things in Scratch or Minecraft doesn't mean that those things are, are good tools. Um, and it doesn't mean... Like kids are learning some form of programming, but it doesn't, uh, it's not that interesting because um, kids would make things move and play games anyways. They'd be doing those things anyways. Um, instead, we want to build tools and environments for kids to do things they wouldn't be doing anyways, such as um, like democracy or scientific thinking, the sorts of non-human universals. He, he said that Alan had that this list of like the human universals, things that people do anyways, like singing and dancing, and then the non-human universals, the kind of enlightenment values that we that we cherish. And anyways, um, kind of a little rant, um, but I thought this could be a good transition point to talking about Scratch, um, which I don't, I don't think is shit crayons, but you know, I, I get Brett's point there. Yeah, I think it's a subtle, maybe not exactly subtle, but it's a non-obvious point that I'm glad that Brett has, although uh, I also don't think Scratch is shit crayons. I've, I want to acknowledge the amazing artifact that Scratch is and what pe what kind of concrete human good has come out of it. Agreed, 100%. So yeah, I worked on Scratch um, as a contractor for, it was only about seven months, but it was a very long seven months in a good sense. Like I got really... Um, friendly with the creators of Scratch and I still talk to some of them to this day and I go back and visit occasionally um, and I kind of just downloaded the ethos of the space and got a little bit more sense of the design values of Scratch and I started learning a little bit about the history and the backstory of how Scratch came to be which I think is very interesting and from like it to me, it is one of the one of the like top ideals or the kind of best examples we have so far of what a good programming environment can do, what a good programming environment is like. And I think there's a lot to learn from both how Scratch is designed and how Scratch was made in the first place. Uh, yeah, awesome. Let's let's get into that. Right? So, yeah, tell tell us the story. How did it how did it come to be? So this is all through my understanding. Um, so if I get any details wrong, I'm sorry. Sorry, Scratch team. Uh, but so it, it, I think it starts with Alan Kay, actually. Um, 
So Alan had produced eToys in the, I think in the 90s. Um, and eToys was kind of a, a small talk specifically for children in some ways. It was this kind of all-encompassing software system that allowed you to do very powerful things within it and do this kind of um, simulations and um, other kind of programming tasks that Alan wants to help children be able to do. And the one of the main programmers from that was John Maloney. Um, and John came over to the Scratch team to the lifelong kindergarten group at the Media Lab, um, I think in the early 2000s. And Mitch Resnick, um, was also talking with Alan and they had a bunch of different, they had a bunch of different retreats. So there's a lot of cross pollination between, uh, what was kind of Alan's group and was the not yet scratch scratch group. And it started with this kind of like, you know, um, Mitch Resnick and I want to say Natalie, uh, Rusk. Natalie was this amazing, is this amazing designer who I think is a big part of why Scratch is so important um, or why Scratch is so good because she's, she is one of the people who started the Computer Clubhouse, which is a bunch of after-school uh, programs for teaching kids how to use or having a creative environment for kids to use, like Photoshop and play music and try all these new digital um, tools that are coming out. And Mitch and Natalie saw this happening in their computer clubhouses, which are now kind of nationwide or even worldwide at this point. And we're like, kids aren't programming. Like, how can we get them to program? And that's when they started seeing eToys. And we're like, oh, I think there's something here with eToys. So they kind of brought John Maloney in and started making their own thing inspired by eToys. And it feels important to say Natalie sat down with children every week for two years and just like watch them use different iterations of scratch until it was like kind of airtight this like especially the first interaction with scratch fascinating um yeah I had heard parts of that story before like the retreats that um the, the, the labs kind of went on together um I think I, I spoke briefly with Mitch Resnick um, a few months ago, and he I, he almost made it like a bit of a competition between Scratch and eToys. Like Alan was saying, you know, I, like you know, I want to teach kids like scientific thinking, and eToys was a bit more serious, and Scratch kind of took a more playful, video gameish approach. Um, and then I, I don't really know what's going on with eToys, but it seems like Scratch has certainly won the uh, like adoption uh, game. Yeah. Um, I, I, it's easy to set up that, um, that kind of, that's actually a quite common, uh, dichotomy I would say is that I've struggled with quite a bit, which is the kind of scratch approach versus the e-toys and trying to understand how they're similar and how they're different and kind of what values each works on and, you know, is it a good thing that Scratch is so popular? I think in most, a lot of cases for me, yes. But I also hear Brett's criticism, and I know this is Alan's criticism, um, that there's kind of a sense of wanting to do more or that there's more potential to do. 
that scratch doesn't quite hit in some way. Yeah. So um, I guess I maybe I, I want to ask kind of more explicitly, like, uh, in what ways do you feel like scratch points towards the future of programming? And then what are some of the places it leaves room for improvement? Yeah. Uh, so I'll tell a brief story. Um, one thing I've done is teach programming to high schoolers as part of what's it's called. It was called mission bit. Uh, this was for, it was a free after school program for public high school students in San Francisco. And I mentored a few classes and taught my own class. And I started with scratch because I like scratch. And there's this one particular moment I remember where I kind of gave like a, three minute introduction to scratch. It was like, here's kind of generally how it is. There's the screen on the left. There's these blocks on the right. You put up the blocks together to do stuff. And then I just told them, okay, go do the introduction. It's like kind of a sidebar thing that just pops out. Just kind of go through the step-by-step. And then once you're done, we'll come back and like figure out what to do next. And they all completed it within like 30 seconds to a minute or something like that. But then something interesting started happening, which is they all started just spontaneously messing around themselves with no direction from me. I didn't tell them to do that. I didn't even suggest it. They just started making things on their own. Like I would say, I would call it productively messing around. And to me, that's amazing. Cause I was like, I had this insight right after that, which was like, wait, if this was JavaScript or, you know, whatever other programming language or environment, it would have taken them, over six weeks to get to even close to the same space. So to me, something important about Scratch is that it took what could be a like six week or two month or some really long amount of time interaction and smushes parts of it down to like a minute or a couple minutes. Mm. And to me, that's a really a function of its UI. Like it really pushed down whatever that beginner learning curve is to what's probably the bare minimum or close to it. And so, and what, how would, like, how did it accomplish this? Would you like give the credit to the like no syntax errors, the shapes, uh, what, what gives scratch the magic? That is something I may write an entire essay on someday. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I, I think there's lots of really important parts. not just in UI, but also in like the community aspects of the Scratch programming experience and the emphasis on doing things that children authentically find interesting in the like, um, in the realm of Seymour Papert and these like, or Piaget and these like people who are focused on um, what children find meaningful. But just from a UI perspective for the moment, I think having a toolbox of options is really important. I think having the blocks um, that you can just like drag out and are just kind of objects instead of having this like blank text screen where you can put anything and having like a kind of good starting point of like, here's a character and here's things you can do with the character. Um, Kind of uh, give it like a pretty um, low on-ramp, I would say, or a low floor, as Mitch likes to say, kind of easily accessible to beginners. Um, 
experience. Yep, I I agree. I don't think it's paralleled. It's it's the best in terms of the low floor. Um, so I think now is a good time to switch gears a little bit and um, talk about your time at CDG, uh, and then that I get which turned into Dynamic Land. Um, but first, I'd be curious to focus a bit on CDG because, as you said it is kind of a secret organization that now doesn't exist anymore. So um, I'd be curious and probably listeners too, about like kind of what, what it was like there, what kind of things you and others worked on. Yeah. Uh, so it was a lab in San Francisco from, I think, late 2013 to um, sometime in 2017. I don't know exactly when it officially ended. Um, it was the, the San Francisco lab was a building in, the uh, uh, South of market Soma in San Francisco, uh, is this beautiful building that we found and it housed several of these research groups of the communications design group, which was basically, I, in my understanding, um, Alan kind of rounded up all of the resources um, to make a research lab in the style of Park uh, back from the 60s and 70s and 80s. And so there are several groups within that, that. That was CDG as kind of Alan kind of head of the organization, but not actually in power, just kind of maybe spiritual leader or something like that. Um, and he... <laughs> It was a little bit cult-like, and especially because it is very radical in the sense of all the, there's there's several different groups um, led by different PIs. There was my group that was headed by Brett Victor. There was uh, John Maloney's group who, uh, who worked on a kind of successor to Scratch. Uh, There was Vi Hart's group. Um, which was working with VR. They were called Ella VR. And there was Alex Worth's group uh, in LA. And he was working on a lot of different kind of future of programming ideas. And I think Yoshiki uh, was another uh, group, although he was in LA and often worked with or around uh, Alex Worth's group. But there's these several different groups and they're pretty much autonomous, but able to communicate um yeah cool um and so what kind of stuff did you work on while you were there uh so the kind of dictum was uh, brett was really interested in taking he did the media lab talk um which was, do you remember the name off the top of your head? Oh, that was such a good one. Was that drawing dynamic visualization? I don't know. No, it was uh, media for thinking the unthinkable. Of course. course. So that was kind of, that was Brett, as I view it, that was kind of Brett looking at his past, you know, five years of work uh, or more and saying, okay, what is all this stuff he just made? And what is it pointing to? And, it was pointing to him to this kind of really new idea, um, which is now what became dynamic land, but this like really big set of ideas around what dynamic media could mean. And which is not a thing on a computer screen. 
which is not a thing that is like kind of inheriting old ideas of how media works, like static media, like paper-based media, things like that. Um, and so Brett established this group to try and work in this new vein uh, of like really wild, really new radical um, ways of working with dynamic content, dynamic media. Uh, and the group was called the Dynamic Medium Group. Um, we also, we didn't know what that meant. <laughs> uh, we you know we had Brett's work as a kind of template and he had published a, a, I don't know if you've seen this document, a floor plan and research agenda. Yep. Is combined. Yeah. Yeah. Very long. Um, that's definitely long <laughs> uh, horizontally. Yeah. It's, it was this huge poster. Uh, basically it started as a PDF and then he needed a poster because it wanted to be a poster is, is how he would say it, I think. <laughs> but yeah, it's this, it's this giant document trying to lay out like the, these different aspects of human experience and human media and trying to capture things about how media today did not work well and how it could work well in the future. Um, yeah, it's a beautiful document. I find it very inspiring. Yeah, and that was the kind of agenda of our group is to try and figure out what that actually means or to start making examples like little steps or big steps towards whatever this dynamic future could be. Maybe a future that's not so isolated to rectangles. That became one of the the big like selling points, I think, of the, the vision, which is, yeah, why is all the computer stuff in this rectangle? It kind of makes sense, but like we have this whole world to work with. We have these bodies. We have such keen social senses. We have all this like stuff that is not supported at all by the dynamic medium as it exists today. So <laughs> it's true. Yeah, flat rectangles are flat and rectangular. Right. And Brett had his essay about uh, the future of human interaction design. I forget. Yes. Yeah, something like that. Um, that's or, a good one where it's like wow I we, think, ha we have all these hands and these hands are amazing yeah. why aren't we using them sometimes I, I think he's at his best when he's complaining about stuff or like <laughs> ranting <laughs> like like his future or his learnable programming essay is also one of my favorites when he yeah. like takes something in particular and is like this thing is so the opposite of what i think the future is yeah i i like that kind of style of uh, bread has made several things that like in that I've seen in person that are like, uh, yes, more of this and no, not this. And often they're the form of pictures. So when mm -hmm. it's like a bunch of people hunched over their laptops at not looking or talking with each other, he goes, no, not this. That goes in like the no column. And then it's like a bunch of people cooking together and all like sharing, you know, a common space and working together and like looking at things together and, collaborating in a more human way, humane way that goes in like the yes column. And I've seen like several of these kinds of yes, this, no, not this kind of format. And I think it's just a helpful way of having like a bunch of deeply felt principles, but no, like no concrete way to express them besides no, 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 not that. And Oh yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Mm. 
So hearing you describe kind of the agenda of this group, I'm a little bit surprised because I didn't realize how uh, like dynamic landy the, the, his group at CDG was. I, I didn't think you guys got 3D physical reality stuff until dynamic land. So it, it like you guys, is, is, is my new understanding more accurate that you were like building precursors to dynamic land at CDG? Uh, I think yes and no. So that is the dream, and that was the vision. But a lot of, especially the early things that came out of CD, our group and CDG in particular, were things that were more in line with Brett, Brett's work, you know, pre-2013, I would say, or, you know, like 2013 and before. So, like, those were his main set of essays and videos around... Um, future of programming and new expressive artistic things and dynamic drawing dynamic graphics and um, explorable explanations and things like that. Got it. And so a lot of the things that I and many of the other people did were those kinds of projects. So that's where I came out with legible mathematics. And that's when I came out with a interactive multi-representation viewing of a um, civil rights documentary mm-hmm. uh, called Eyes on the Prize. And those were kind of in the spirit of explorable explanation, things on the screen. Totally. But eventually we started getting, you know, Brett got more and more into these ideas about dynamic physical media, so media outside the screen. And he was kind of like, wanting to like pull us along with him is how I think of it sometimes. And so then we started making, um, it really kind of, it started gelling together when Brett came, Brett and Robert Oxhorn created uh, the kind of precursors to dynamic land, which was called hypercard in the world. And that was a system like real talk, which was what, which is what powers dynamic land um, that allowed us to hook up lots of different inputs and outputs like um, cameras and projectors and processors and scatter those throughout our entire lab space and then create uh, like demos or um, experiences that could kind of talk with each other. So you could like, we used a lot of laser pointers at the time. So like you could laser point on one wall, a thing on one wall, and it could affect something in a different part of the room because it was all one operating system. And that's when the dynamic land like ideas were really starting to take off. Cool. Um, Before we continue on that uh, timeline and get into like the dynamic land stuff, I want to talk a bit about your legible mathematics essay because it really is one of my like, top favorite essays ever of all time. It's just amazing. I uh, I put it up there with like you know learnable programming. Uh, it's like I think in my mind there it's like almost an extension of that essay. Um, so um, I kind of want to first acknowledge you for it because it's so great, and then also get, get oh thank you yeah yeah um, get a sense of uh, like you know from like me wanting to produce content that's as good as it like you know I want to kind of hear about how the ideas kind of came together and how long it, 
it took to work on it and like advice you'd have for, for writing you know, really amazing content like that, that points towards the future of, of programming? Oh, that's, that's complicated now. It was not as complicated when I wrote that essay, but my ideas have shifted and evolved as I've ah, interesting. kept kind of working on this stuff. Um, so for me, there was a bunch of things that I kind of felt awkward about in programming that I suspected did not have to be as awkward as they felt. And legible mathematics to me was the first kind of forays into imagining in this very, like you said, learnable programming. It's pretty much modeled off of learnable programming, uh, the essay. Kind of foray into different ideas um, for working in a particular domain. And I was having, I, I was kind of getting this idea that something that was annoying about programming was this very symbolic way of working, which Brett has talked about in a lot of different ways, which I think is great. But I was trying to explore, you know, what is it about these symbols and is it easier to understand how something is working if the symbols are augmented with like a more concrete um, thing, I would say, a more concrete representation. So like you see mathematical symbols and it's just like, that looks like a bunch of symbols. What does this mean? But then maybe you see examples of like the step-by-step -step execution of that mathematical formula. And it's like, oh, okay. Uh, that's probably a little easier to understand because you can kind of go back and forth between the symbols and the, the concrete representation. And I ran into this like many times, both while programming and in math class itself, where I was like, what? this doesn't feel, this feels weird. Like those symbols could mean anything. They mean a very specific thing often, but it's, I don't really have a good sense of just coming into that, what that is, what it's actually doing or what it actually means. So basically, I brainstormed a bunch of ideas, which most most of which went into legible mathematics, about different ways of representing arithmetic, um, such that you actually see what the data is, instead of just having like the arithmetic. Um, and I kind of got into the like, you know, what can we get just from looking? Like, how can we design a mathematical expression so that just by looking at it, we can get a whole bunch of understanding of how the structure of this thing is working. So that that was really directly inspired by not just learnable programming, but also um, Magic Ink. Of course, yeah. Because to me, a lot of what Magic Ink is just about, you know, the eye is so much faster than the kind of logical, um, thoughtful brain. Totally. So being able to like put the put the kind of understanding in the representation itself, I thought was very powerful. And then once you had that, there's a bunch of interactive things that one could do too, like um, what if scenarios or seeing inside what the each subpart of the equation. And so that was just a, to me, that was a kind of early exploration of those different ideas, many of which I'm still kind of hammering on today. Yeah, and I want to get to that in a second, but I just want to acknowledge that I think um, you do a really good job in that essay of exemplifying the thing we talked about earlier in this conversation from Brett Victor's Magic Inc., the um, interaction considered harmful. You show uh, 
like there, you have one visualization where you can expand a term to see how sub expressions are evaluated. Um, so that's kind of like an interaction based approach. Um, but then it, you show like an, another way to view sub expression evaluation is just in line right underneath uh, in, in the kind of a smaller, subtle um, view. It's kind of hard to describe over audio, but I, I think you do a really wonderful job of applying Brett's pr principle. Um, that like eyes are very fast and efficient. You don't need to like add any interaction uh, to make it better. It's actually better if you do away with that. Yeah. And maybe instead of better, I would modify that to be like, it has certain advantages depending on what you're trying to do. Of course. Yeah. Um, so I guess one question uh, is uh, about uh, legible mathematics is it, like how much of it do you see as being about the like drag and droppy nature of of it as opposed like versus like textual syntax or or is it like it really not about that at all and it's more about like what what do these symbols mean definitely the second part what do the symbols mean got it uh yeah the to me the i sometimes like, got confused i thought it was about both yeah for me it's a lot more about the the kind of understanding of what the symbols are doing. And that, that has been a theme that has been followed me throughout my programming work, which is, it, it feels kind of unreasonable to me on a deep level that there's, you know, these symbols are doing something and it's totally understandable what they're doing, but we don't really get any help from the programming environment trying to like help us tease out like, know exactly what he's doing or giving some us some feedback uh, especially in real time because it's you know quite often I have the experience programming where something happens you know 10 line I'm 10 lines past where a bug has happened but don't realize it for a long time and then I have to go back and like I lose all the context and and a lot of these bugs could have just been caught immediately instead of having to wait a long time to do it to catch it. Mm -hmm. um, I guess just to play devil's advocate, um, I was recently rereading re uh, "No Silver Bullet" by Fred Brooks, which you know it's a it's a, gr a great pastime for people like us to, to reread Fred Book Brooks, and he argues that software is inherently unvisualizable because it's so abstract. And um, sure, you could take simple symbols and show concrete values that they represent. But once you get complicated data structures and abstract data structures, uh, it's, it's hard to pull this trick. Uh, so uh, how would you answer, like, how would you respond to that idea? Uh, I think that saying software is inherently unvisualizable is a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy where it may in fact be that lots of software or parts of software, especially in programming system, have alternate representations which are give us better information about how a system works than the very symbolic um, word-based or like string-based um, or graph-based, maybe is another way of saying that, um, complexity of this, of software systems. And 
it it's I think it's partly true um, that software systems are just enormously complex, uh, especially big ones like many like Microsoft Word is it's probably like what twenty million lines at this time at this point like some huge number of just straight lines of code that as Alan likes to say if anyone tried to read all of that code it would take them a lifetime. Like, no one can actually read that many lines of code, which, if not one person can keep a thing in their head, you know, uh, <laughs> there might be some problems there. Or maybe not just one person keeping their head, but, like, it's just a huge, huge, huge amount of information. Um, and trying to cut back on that complexity, I think, is... A really important task and one way we have of doing that is by working with representations and representations that give us certain information that might help us understand something in an easier or more complex way uh so so you're saying that if we had better representations they'd lend themselves better toward to visualization I would say I would say it's a research project that I think is quite interesting and quite worth doing to try and to make software systems less complex or easier to hold in the human mind maybe is another way of saying that. I think representations are going to be the big one that helps us do that. Uh, and those could be visualizations, mm -hmm. but I don't exactly mean visualizations. Um, like text is a visualization, for example like, or representation. Um, but code is a particularly not great representation in a lot of ways, especially for human understanding. Like, a lot of programming languages were designed for kind of the machine first to run and the human to understand second. And a mm -hmm. lot of what my work is feels like it's about is kind of trying to do the opposite starting with, okay, what is a good human way of understanding this stuff? And then let's try and make a programming system out of that. Is that possible? Mm -hmm. It may not be. But. So uh, in um, like the Brett Victor in inventing a principle sense, uh, how it, I kind of want to like, give you an opportunity to like re rephrase your principle. It's because it sounds like that's kind of what you're saying, that something in what you just said is your principle. Or, or maybe I'm putting words in your mouth. Oh, I, I see kind of what you're saying. Um, let me think about that for one second. Um, I'm actually not super principled about this. Um, I would say that my heart breaks when people aren't given the potential or the when potentials people's potential is shut down. And I see that happen a lot with programming in particular because of bad environments, bad design decisions, bad languages, things that aren't meant for humans or not like, you know, meant make it easy for humans who don't already understand programming or already understand have a super logical mind to kind of wrap their minds around. So for me, it's a lot more about the compassion of not wanting to see people suffer like that, um, not wanting to like close people mm -hmm. down to programming just because 
you know, they need to install some Python environment and then somehow that doesn't work. And, you know, beginnings are so fragile. And so wanting to like mm. really kind of hold that kind of getting the sense of like a baby bird, like really mm. like hold and cherish and like give like the most possible support to, um, that is more where I'm coming from rather than a principled approach. Yeah, I, I could see that. I have a, I have a clearer picture. I, it almost, uh, to me, like the uh, installing of packages and there was another phrase you used, um, something about like, like having to know programming or having to like deal with random programming artifacts. To me, like the phrase that encompasses a lot of those things is like, uh, incidental complexity or like machine complexity versus like the things humans care about. So it, it's not, I, I like the way you kind of put this common phrase of incidental complexity in terms of very like human compassion and like nurturing. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I like that. Yeah. For me, that's the most important thing is compassion and like all the kind of creativity kind of runs from there because otherwise you know how how am i going to know what i'm working on like for me i struggled a lot with how how do i figure out what is a good thing to work on and if i just come back to compassion and like really what do i want for human beings then i have a kind of a huge amount of energy to work towards human benefit if I just kind of, if I just connect with that compassion. Mm. Cool. Um, I feel like this is an interesting uh, transition point to talk about uh, flow sheets. Um, because I, I vaguely remember you talking about um, some problems that you were working on or saw others working on and you thought that you could build a better tool for to allow people to work on those sorts of problems. And, and that's kind of how flow sheets came about. Um, in particular, I remember you mentioned that it was like watching Jonathan Bloom programming that got you inspired to do flow sheets. Um, and I know that your obsession with watching Jonathan Bloom program is, is also like an interesting, interesting thing to talk about. So I thought I'd start there. Oh, Jonathan Blow. Yeah. Blow, yeah. sorry. Yeah. That's name. Yeah, so flow sheets, I start, I worked on it quite a bit at CDG. That was another one of the projects. Um, and I made a couple different prototypes. The first one was in collaboration with Alex Worth, uh, most notably, who helped build a lot of the first thing. And more or less, this was me understanding that I had a bunch of different kinds of similar programming tasks that were a lot about data manipulation that felt really um, not easy for me to do in like Python, which is the language I use quite a bit, or JavaScript or something like that. And I imagined it would be a lot simpler if I just kind of got direct feedback, like I type a line and then do a thing, and it does a thing, and I see if it works, and then if it does work, I can go on to the next thing. Otherwise, I got to modify the thing I just wrote, um, or I can like try things out. Like I could just imagine doing those kinds of tasks in a much more fluid way. And I took a bunch, like a pile of these programs that I had 
already written in Python and redesign them in mockups at first and then in a separate programming environment to see what it would be like if, you know, what it would look like and what it would be like to program if I was always looking at data as I programmed. And I never actually didn't have the option of not looking at data. Like I always had to be looking at concrete, something did something rather than normal programs, which are tend to be very abstract or can be very abstract. And that's where flow sheets came from. Um, and I made a, the first prototype at CDG and the second prototype uh, later when I left um, in, I think, late 2016 or early 2017, I think, is when I made Flow Sheets uh, version 2. And actually, I, I would like to say one thing before I get to the Jonathan Blow thing, which is one important part felt like I really over-designed the first system. Um, you know, Fred Brooks has, like, the second system effect. Um, I would say, actually, I did that the opposite way, where I really over-designed the first one. It was like, imagine how every little thing was going to work. And then in the second prototype, I was like, you know what? I couldn't actually make any programs. Like, it wasn't fun to make programs in that environment. What would it be like if I just, like, folk threw away a bunch of my ideas that I thought I cared about and just tried to see what is it like to program with data? Even if I have to, like, type in little bits of Python, that's fine. Just I want to see what it's like to have data. And it turns out it feels really good, <laughs> especially when you're doing like uh, kind of data-oriented, like data transformation tasks. And I made like a couple dozen programs in Flowsheets version 2. And it feels great. It's like become my preferred programming environment to this point. Uh, so if I have a task that's very data transformy, <laughs> then I prefer to use that because I can see what's going on. It's like very, very clear. <laughs> Yeah, and um, that's it's quite a claim. Uh, for I'll, I'll just put that out there. Um, but I will also put out there that um, it's a very easy claim to believe in if once you've watched the flow sheets video. So if anyone out there who's listening to this hasn't already seen those the flow sheets videos, I highly recommend it. Um, and you will you will you will believe Glenn's claim that that it is a preferred uh, programming environment for data intensive tasks. I endorse I endorse it. Thanks. I, I don't actually have a claim about other people wanting to use this environment. I just have my my very pure claim is that I really like using it. And yeah, well, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I don't believe you're uh, like deluding yourself and you just like something because you made it. I think uh, that like most people will, will it'll, it would be like a preferred environment for most people. Yeah. It, I, or, or at least for me, I, I can say that. Yeah, it feels good to use. And the like getting... Uh, direct feedback on the data as you create the program, it it feels kind of like a no-brainer at this point to me. It's just like, oh yeah, of course we need something like this. This feels really good. Like, why would you not have this? Um, yep. Instead, of, like a lot of times I have to like guess what my program is going to do, and then it's like hard to get the information if it doesn't do what I expected to do. It's even hard to tell if it did do the thing I expected to do. Um, so just getting the direct feedback, it feels great. And I think there's a lot of potential there too. Um, I'm actually starting a software business based on Flowsheets version two, which tries to make a more, I'll say consumer ready, uh, consumer ready, like more accessible. So you're not 
having to type in Python, for example, but you could do more like drag and drop kind of things. Oh, interesting. Um, I feel I like not, not to like, you know, I'm sure you know this better than I do, but I, I liked Flushy's version two. you type in Python for the reasons that you said, you know, like you can still do a lot kind of like in Excel, you type the equal sign, you type your little formula, you know, like you don't need, it doesn't need to be much more polished than that. Yeah, the um, using anyway. have the the one of the yeah. big problems or the maybe parts that are incomplete is that um, a lot of times you want to like have the program affect something in the world, like make a network mm -hmm. request or write a file to a disk or um, save some kind of thing. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of things that you'd want to do, or like run on a server every five minutes things like that. And Flowsheets was not capable, or the prototype it made was not capable of doing any of those things. There are probably ways to do that, but I didn't develop the prototype to that point. Got it. Well, so that's actually something um, that like leads me to something that I've been working on for a while. So, so I wanted to get your thoughts on it because um, it's, it's very related to Flowsheets. So Flowsheets makes a lot of sense for like, one-way data transformations you like import like in your examples you import a dictionary you filter out some words and you map some words that all works beautifully uh, and that's a lot of what programmers do so that makes sense but there are some things that programmers do like reactive systems where, where they're like cycles you know data is updated like shows you some view and then people interact with the view and it updates some data uh, that interaction thing but vector doesn't like so much always uh so I, or, or just like network requests, like th there are things that are more real timey that, that aren't like one way mapping. So, um, yeah, do you have thoughts on how you would keep the concreteness uh, with things that are kind of uh, flow through time? Yeah, um, I think this gets back to me for the Jonathan Blow um, video. So Jonathan Blow is the uh, programmer who made Braid and The Witness, these two amazing games. Um, and he's also the designer of the games and um, he sometimes does programming streams and he like shows him making the, the game engine um, for his games. And I got very interested in watching him program for like a few weeks of last year. I was kind of watching his, him program obsessively because I think he is probably one of the best programmers that I've seen work. He has this like very sharp mind. He knows the, his code really well. He has like a really uh, good eye for subtle details, like how things are mapped in memory and how that's going to affect performance. And he has pretty good senses of when there's a bug, what kinds of things will um, be the, the roots of those bugs. He still has a lot of issues tracking those things down, um, which I think to me is an opportunity as a designer saying, okay, here's something even one of the best programmers that I've ever seen has issues with. What can we do to help this person? And I don't know how to do that. I have one prototype in <laughs> that's a... I haven't, that's like, you know, like 20% finished or something like that. 
that I may try and submit to uh, live this November. Oh, sweet. I'll, uh, I'm planning to be there, oh, so I will see you there. Yeah, I'd love to see you. Um, yeah, it's kind of a mix between a REPL and a debugger that lives alongside your code editor. Um, and this is basically trying to do the opposite of flow sheets in some ways, where or bring the best parts of flow sheets into a larger code base. Because if you visualized every piece, every the data in every line of code in you know a forty thousand line code base like Jonathan Blow is working on, then uh, you're just not going to be able to understand what's happening. It'll just be too much information. It'll be a lot of irrelevant information. And so that, to me, I began to wonder, like, how do you bring some of these really nice feelings of flow sheets, like the kind of direct feedback and this good insight into data with live, being able to try a lot of stuff out very quickly? How do you get some of those benefits into a really large code base? And so that's this idea for kind of REPL or debugger or I'm calling it Replugger. We'll see if the name sticks. <laughs> <laughs> Replugger. That is an elegant name. Thanks. But I think it's important because there's here's this expert programmer who still has lots of problems programming. Like he is extraordinarily smart and gifted and works really hard to do all this. Yet, even he's having problems. So for me, it's not just making programming better and more accessible for beginners, which I think is really important, like really, really important. But I'm also somewhat interested in this question of how do we make experts better? Yeah, to I, I totally agree. And I, I am also someone who like oscillates on both, both ends of this problem. Like how do we lower the floor? And also, like, raise the ceiling. I don't know if raising the ceiling is qu quite the right metaphor because we don't want to increase what people can do. We want to kind of like increase like their ability to do the things. I don't. I don't know. Um, so yeah, I I agree with you. They're, they're both interesting problems, and I think you and I probably are in the same boat in that we hope that like there's a kind of the, you could use the same solution for lowering the floor and raising the ceiling, if that makes sense. Like you could build something that Jonathan Blow would like and it would also help young, like you know, new programmers at the same time. That's quite possible. I, I worry about the kind of competing design considerations in that sense. So yes. for me personally, yeah. I'd want to work on maybe one or the other or chunks one at a time. of each. But yeah, I, I share that vision. Like a artist uses a pencil and a a four-year-old uses a pencil. Totally. I guess the the opposite side of that argument is like a lot of professionals have professional tools while beginners have beginner tools in, in other industries. Like kids play with shovels, but like adults use forklifts or whatever. Right. There's like an increase um, in capability that can come. Yeah. And like complexity. Like, uh, like kids use iMovie, adults use... Final Cut Pro or Premiere or whatever. Um, but but I guess, you know, to criticize my own argument, um, iMovie and, and 
Premiere and Photoshop 10 or not Photoshop, um, Final Cut 10 all look very similar. Like you just add a few knobs and, and you get the more complex interface. So, so that could be kind of the, the solution. Like they, they look similar, but the adult one has like a little bit different design criteria than the, than the kid one. Yeah. And I'm a little, uh, wary of using Final Cut as the kind of end all of, uh, movie production software because there is huge amount of uh, there's a huge amount of problems with it as I've, I used to know someone on the Apple design team who was designing the next versions of Final Cut uh, this is one of our the friends at the lab um, for, of CDG mm-hmm. and hearing some of the stories about how people use in Apple's internal design process it is far from perfect is what I'll say Totally, totally. Yeah, well, Final Cut 10 was kind of like a disaster. The first version of Final Cut 10, everyone left and went to Premiere. Because I, I was I was a filmmaker at the time. I was like in high school, but I was like doing film stuff. Um, and so we all switched to Premiere. Um, and then, but then Final Cut 10 kind of like, you know, like improved enough that I, I think a lot of us switched back. But but I'm not really a filmmaker. I was just a high school filmmaker. So I don't, I don't really know what I'm talking about. But still, there's... And, uh, <laughs> and to maybe... Um, you know, I have like little versions of Alan Kay and Brett Victor in my head now after studying their work for so long, but I feel like an important part is to study the heights of human expression and, Mm -hmm. you know, they're not just exclusively like accessibility is still important, but also trying to understand like, what are the kind of greatest things that humans have made and is it possible to support humans in making those great things um and like what what kind of things would they need uh totally like expert tools like how do we empower scientists to like solve global warming i know brett's talked about building tools for that kind of thing yeah exactly and i don't have too many opinions about that but i think it is worth looking at the kind of amazing expressive ability expressive qualities that humans have and trying to support that in all its all its glory from its beginning stages to its, um, you know, completed stages. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I feel like uh, Brent and or Alan would, might say that the extremes are the best places to work, like allowing ki- like lowering the floor for kids. That's great. Uh, raising the ceiling for experts. That's great. The middle, the middle chunk, the, like the people who are working on Snapchat, like we don't need to make their lives easier. Well, yeah, because they're going to make Snapchat. They already made Snapchat. <laughs> You know, they already need that's true. That's true. like from a mm-hmm. research perspective anyway, uh, less than not a business perspective. Those are kind of, you know, already done and people are going to continue making things like that. But whether or not we help right. them. And so yeah. there's, you know, precious few of us working on, uh, you know, pushing uh, it feels a little grandiose, but like really kind of pushing the boundaries of what UIs can do and who can program and how they program. Uh, and I think that's important for, you know, I, it's hard to see computers getting any less uh, like pervasive than they are now. And yeah. we kind of understand that there's an inherent power that comes in programming, whether that's through expression in Scratch or through like simulating climate models in Python or C++ or something. 
and you know I've actually gone and talked with a scientist who was working on who's studying meteorites. He was like one of the foremost meteorite scientists that happened to be studying at UCLA. And he, I asked him about his kind of software tool chain, like how he did his thing. And, it, you know, if you ever want to be inspired, go talk to a scientist who does any amount of programming or data, data munging. It is, it is quite, it is incredible. The kind of horribleness that, that you'll see, like the kind of spreadsheets that are chained together with, people manually updating things and it's kind of amazing that the science is actually able to get done given the kind of their bad tooling, their bad tools. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I have a, a friend who's a scientist um, and yeah, he just uses Python or maybe IPython. Um, but, you know, unsurprisingly, he's able to make it work because he's a genius. So like, it doesn't matter that the tools are so bad. Like, you know, or maybe I, I flip it um, because like the tools for doing science are so bad in order to be a good scientist, you have to like, be a genius. Yeah, I think that that's a big part of it. Yeah, so it'd be nice if more people could be scientists. Um, I, one thing I want to touch on that we kind of skipped over is um, when I so I asked the question of, of how we make things that are less obviously visualizable visualizable and so you talked about your uh what was it replugger, replugger. a repl plus debugger uh, replugger got it I, I missed the p uh replugger um it's almost as hard to pronounce as your last name <laughs> i'm just gonna keep making you say it replugger <laughs> replugger okay so um uh so that's i i think that's a it makes a lot of sense why you'd want to build something like, like a, repl a replugger. <laughs> um, but the, the tack that I usually take when uh, trying to visualize the hard things in programming or the tack I'm taking now in my work is I'm just trying to restrict the model um, like uh, of, of what's allowed in programming, like get rid of mutable state, get rid of side effects, like kind of make it Haskell-y almost um, because my contention is that when you really restrict things, like when you restrict the dimensionality of programming, the, the sorts of things you can do, uh, it, it increases it like uh, it allows it to be mapped onto a two D plane better. So um, I just thought this would be a good time to see if you had any thoughts about that approach. Uh, oh yeah, feedback. Um, one thing I've thought about lately is that in modifying programming, there's like a lot. There's a, there's at least from my perspective right now, there's only two tacks you can take, and one of those is change the model of programming in various ways like you're doing with mutable state or when someone invents a new language they're at least slightly tweaking the model of how a program programming language works and you can also change the ui or the way someone interacts with that model um, and that's the that's the place that i've been working mostly which is trying to change the UI. So right now the UI is mostly like a text editor or something like that. And the representation, the, there's another part of the UI is a bunch of code, a bunch of text. 
or a bunch of words and symbols. And so the thing that I'm interested in doing is how can we, it, you know, it kind of doesn't matter which model to me, it doesn't matter which model of programming someone uses, but if it's well represented or if like it's, it, it might just be obvious what the model is doing if given the right representation. And I, the one example I have of this is someone, a friend was telling me that in Perl, when you iterate through like a hash table or something like this, I forget exactly what data structure was, it does it by mutating a pointer to the thing that it's um, iterating over. And so if you break out of a loop, then that pointer is still in the same place. So it didn't get reset. And so if you start looping over it again, it will start from that place. Oh, boy. And, <laughs> yeah, that's, the, that's what a lot of programmers say when they hear that. And to me, that might be a reasonable design decision. Like, I think at this point we've learned that that's kind of, you know, that's not great. Like, that's, a, that's kind of a bad model. But I could imagine that actually not being a terrible model if somehow it showed you as you were doing this, like, hey, it is mutating this thing, and it might get stuck in a place. And if we get to show you that, then my contention is that would be fine. Like as long as the programmer is aware that's what the model is doing, then hey, we're good. Like they know it does that, and then they can work around that or uh, use that to their advantage or whatever they need to do. Interesting. I I'm with you. Where um, my disagreement is that when you have something like you were saying, like Microsoft Word, the 20 million lines of code, and you're stuck with a model where, sure, you can understand it line by line, and I can tell you what each line is doing visually, or like I can give you the values of each of the symbols, uh, but you still have to go through the 20 million lines, which is going to take more more than the years you have on this earth. So um, constructing visualizations that allow for like greater comp comprehensibility, I think, is important for like regular people to be able to understand complex software. What do you what do you say to that? <laughs> I I'm glad you said that. Um, I so to be clear, I agree that your tack of working with the model, I I think that's great and important because this is like the um, the argument about Roman numerals versus Arabic numerals for multiplication, where you know this is a little I think, bit of a. I can't tell, I can't tell um, if the Roman numerals versus decimals is some is the model or the ui part i can't tell which way oh. you take it <laughs> that's a good point uh you know it, it yeah it's not it's kind of both but i was thinking of the model um like oh i can see how that's confusing actually but yeah i think changing the underlying model is quite important because the model is like the main way we have of understanding a thing and more powerful, powerful models just like simplify things vastly, um, mm -hmm. or can do you that. leverage. But it's, yeah. So um, it, so okay. So given that you you're with me there, um, you would the way you the reason you're working more on the UI is is why. <laughs> um, because almost everyone is working on the model. Is one part of it. Sorry, I I think you cut out. Oh, uh, saying I think almost everyone is working on the model. Oh, okay. 
Uh, like that's why every new programming language gets created. That's why people get really stuck in compilers and type systems. And there's a lot of talk recently about like React and non-mutable state and all this stuff. And I think a lot of that's good, but there's a lot less work in trying to evoke what a model does as opposed to the model itself. And so to me, that's an important just kind of, you know, it's actually quite easy to come into this field and start working on something like that and discover something completely new because no one's ever done it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, just, it's just a very, um, not really, it's not really a, like a field yet. Um, totally. But back to your point about Microsoft Word um, and 20 million lines. Yeah, so that, to me, that's part of this research is, you know, yeah, I, I wouldn't argue that line by line showing data is a good way to understand what Microsoft Word does. My apologies for struggling. Oh, no, that's fine. Um, just being clear. But I would say that, and this is partly what Alan Stepp's project was about, which is different ways of organizing that software may make it a lot um, easier to understand in the same way that like this is again from Alan like the pyramids of Egypt were a bunch of rocks stacked on top of each other in the kind of the most naive way and it took a lot of suffering and slave use and human power and human lives to create Whereas something like the Chrysler building or the Empire State building, you know, went up in several months and it's, you know, like a fraction of the weight. It took fraction of the time. It has, it's almost all usable space as opposed to the pyramids, which had like a tiny amount of usable space. Mm -hmm. And something happened between the pyramids and the building of the Empire State Building, that we kind of somehow got a way of organizing materials and having new materials that made it way more efficient, way easier to do, way more doable. And there might be something like that for software. And this is, to me, I don't have any good like pointers yet because this is so new. Like I can't really argue that this is definitely the future but I think trying to make these software systems more legible, more, I think to me, that's a big part of it is understandable. Cause if you can understand something, it's a lot, you can change it basically. Yeah, of course. I'm totally with you there. Um, so I'm glad you brought up the steps project. Um, um, to, so, but yeah, to dig in more to me, the steps project is, kind of more on the model side. Um, like it looked like a lot of what they were doing was creating new programming languages, new programming languages, models, um, like that, um, that, that vector graphics library that they created at like Nile. And that was like a tiny amount of code, but was super expressive. Um, like other abstractions as opposed to like legible mathematics type of visuals or Brett victory visualizations. Um, so yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I think that is almost all in the model. But then, yeah, Brett came in and made the um, 
representation, the UI for the model, because as he pointed yeah. out in Media for Thinking the Unthinkable, that if you read that code, it's just a bunch of symbols, but there's actually yeah, a impossible. beautiful underlying model to it, apparently. Yeah. Um, and to evoke yeah, I've model. I've tried to, yeah, to to use Brett's tools to get at it, but I wasn't able to do it. Yeah. But to evoke the yeah. model, there is some like UI that isn't necessary to like show here's yeah, what the yeah. model is doing. Here's why this thing is happening. It's, this is fascinating because I really, um, now I can see that I can contextualize my work as really being right on the center. Like I'm, I'm trying to create models that lend themselves well to being visualized. So like I, I kind of, I'm constantly going back and forth, yeah. like, trying to create a new model, see if it's visualized. Um, and I'm, I'm realizing how unique that is. Like people usually work on one side or the other, but I guess there's some people like you and me and Brett and Jonathan Edwards who, who, who jump back and forth. Yeah. And for me, I would say I mostly work on the uh, yeah, representation and UI side. Like any, to me, any programming model is probably fine. Like it could be fine depending <laughs> on what you're trying to do. But yeah, trying to understand and evoke what it's actually what the symbols are doing or how the model works or that there's totally. a model at all. Cause most beginners don't even get that when they come into a programming language. Yep. Yep. Um, cool. Yeah. This was a great, great, great little tangent discussion. Um, but I think I want to move on um, just in the interest of time to talk a bit about dynamic land and, and, and laser socks and um, your adventures there. Sure. Cool. So um, let's see. I don't remember where we left off the conversation in terms of how CDG turned into that dynamic land. I feel like maybe laser socks is a good place to start. Oh, yeah. Um, and I realized I didn't really describe uh, CDG super well. So like the one sentence summary is that um, me and the handful of other people in the group um, all made like dozens of prototypes of, you know, from little things like taped together to kind of more software things, um, trying to get at what this dynamic medium thing that Brett was describing might be. And so we had HyperCard in the Worlds, which was set up throughout the room as a system that we could kind of play with and add things to. And one of the researchers, Heim Gingold's, uh, decided he wanted to have a game jam, which is like, you know, like a one day kind of thing where we all just use this new system to make games in it. And that was really fun. <laughs> I should just say, like, we all like, I think um, about 10 people in total all created a bunch of different games in the system, all kinds of different games. And it was interesting. They were all multiplayer because they're all kind of out in the world. We didn't like say that at the beginning, but they all just kind of became multiplayer because that's what you do when you're in the physical world is you interact with other humans generally. Uh, so we had all these multiplayer games and that's where laser socks came from where we had a lot of the system used laser pointers to do interaction. And so we could like point to something across the room to make something happen with the laser pointer. And I was like, oh, you can't, there should be like a dueling game where you like shoot lasers at each other. 
but that's probably unsafe. You'll probably hit people in the eye. And these were like pretty high power laser pointers. So I was like, ah, you can't shoot at them. Oh, what if you just shot it at their feet? And so that's where the idea for laser socks came from, which is a game where you stand on these two game pads and shoot lasers at the other person's feet. And they try and shoot a laser at your feet. And once they hit it, a camera detects that they hit it and it fills up a bar and once your bar is full, then you've lost. So whoever, whoever, whoever has their bar fill up first loses. Interesting. I, that makes a lot of sense that you thought uh, like laser pointers and eyes are bad, and then like feet are kind of far from eyes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and and so uh-huh. go ahead. I was going to say, um, so it's detecting that the laser pointer is not on this how how is it detecting the laser pointers on the socks oh uh this is actually kind of one of the magical things about i had a conversation with Haim about how how does how do you get the laser how do you get the system to detect when a laser hits a sock and somehow we both don't claim credit for this idea but somehow this idea happened where because the cameras had their exposure really low and we're basically just looking for bright dots we could use that fact to have a black gamepad. And so when you are, shoot a laser at the black gamepad, it doesn't reflect very well because it's black. And when you hit, we had to buy a bunch of white socks. And when it hits the white mm-hmm. sock, it lights up really bright and the camera sees it. And so once yeah. that happens, it once it reflects off the white um, sock and it reflects bright enough for the camera to see it, then it detects a hit and increases uh, your you know your score. Oh, so easy. Yeah. It doesn't have to like know where the socks are in space and where the laser is in space. It's just like, is there a, a circle in this square or not? <laughs> exactly. Is there a bright dot in this particular uh, square? And to make this system, it was, it was incredibly easy. Um, it took me an afternoon to build it. And I basically put tape some trash bags to the ground. And then you use the laser pointer to like draw a rectangle around the, um, the trash bag or the game pad. And then you say that that basically tells the system, this is an object of interest. And then it detects that object and you can like do things with that object. Like if there's a laser within this object, do something and so i had to write a line of code or what would be a line of code uh it ended up being like a dozen or a couple dozen lines just because the system was imperfect but like you could imagine like writing one line of code which is when a dot is detected in this square or when a dot is detected on this object because there's an object oriented system increase the score and then the score you know keeper thing just draws a rectangle, which is like draw a rectangle when the score increases. And to me, that was like an interesting, from the future of programming perspective or the future of coding perspective, that was like a really interesting, uh, I'll call it a discovery. It doesn't exactly feel like I made it, but like I could program this thing that's a pretty new and fun game in an afternoon with trash bags and cardboard and laser pointers and socks. And 
I could do that with like two lines of programming. And it may, it like pointed out to me that there's like, there could be something real here um, or something really interesting in bringing a system like that to a wider set of people. Like I wonder about the kind of creativity that would be unleashed if Mm. such a system like dynamic land have made it out and had a good like corpus of information of like, here's the kinds of things you could make um, go nuts. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree with you that laser socks really does kind of point towards something like uh, the ability to create multiplayer fun, creative things very simply. Um, I, there was an analogy someone used that I was looking for in preparation for this interview. I couldn't find. They compared laser socks to something like it was like the killer app of dynamic land that kind of proved it. Do you remember oh, what, what I'm talking about? Brett. Yeah. Um, Brett said that laser socks was our space war and he was referring to um, space war, the like classic, one of the first computer games that all the, uh, DARPA, or sorry, the ARPA researchers were playing and modifying and sending around. It was like one of these like amazing, this is like a really simple game about like shooting each other spaceships on this really early prototype screens and stuff. But Stuart Brand wrote an article about Space War, about how like incredibly addictive it was and how people were like staying up all night to do it. And it kind of, it was like a harbinger um, of like here's something really new that computers could do that no one's ever really seen before. And that's the analogy Brett was making of like, here is like a kind of game that's really fun at dynamic land, like uh, in this new medium that is pretty simple, but it has this like interesting quality. Yeah. I, awesome. I don't know if yeah, I quite that's... agree with that analogy, but I'm flattered. Yeah. I, I can imagine that's Brett's giving you quite, quite the uh, uh, compliment there. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts, pros and cons, um, criticisms um, about Dynamic Land. Maybe if you want to go into why you left, that'd be interesting too. Um, what, what you think about the future of what, what Dynamic Land tells us about the future of programming? Um, yeah, so Dynamic Land um, was, so CDG started, it became clear that our funding was running out, and um, I, I want to say in a really quick aside that the funding was pretty innovative in that it was just given to us, it was just money given to us with nothing expected in return. Um, as that's my understanding anyway. And that is the research model that Alan Kay would like to see more <laughs> in this world of researchers who, you know, have some interesting ideas to just kind of let them go and follow their vision. And at the worst case, you know, you've paid their salary for a decade or something. And the best case you get things like the internet or, you know, <laughs> interactive computing, um, <laughs> or laser printers, or all this stuff that happened back in the ARPA days. So it's a pretty small bet in comparison to like 
the huge amount of stuff that can come out of it. And I share some of that. Um, so that's just something I wanted to mention. Um, but mm -hmm. back to CDG. So the funding was running out and the whole set of all the researchers could no longer be supported by that funding source. And so the dynamic medium group, Brett Victor's group started trying to spin out and um, find different funding and kind of continue their research. And that's how Dynamic Lane got created, which is a nonprofit uh, research group at this point. And they have a building in Oakland. And I was there for kind of the very last parts right before they, they kind of had an office across the street from the current building that was under construction. And I left around uh, kind of when it like the it was being designed and planned. Um, and the reason I left was I uh, had really nothing. It was the group was switching um, roles a little bit to more the design and engineering of real talk. And to me, that wasn't so interesting. It felt a little bit more like kind of nitty gritty flipping bits than I cared about. Yeah, a little bit more engineering than I cared about. And also my interests were shifting from computing at that point anyway. And I was getting a lot more interested in, maybe I'll say human happiness. Um, yeah, you, you dropped the uh, incidental complexity stuff and you just focused on compassion and it's, and it's more pure sense. Yeah, um, like I... Personally, I examined my work really closely and I thought, what would happen if this work succeeded wildly? Like if it like really took off and like the work that I personally was doing, what would happen as results? And like what kind, how would humans be affected? And really I asked, would they be happier? And I realized the answer to that was not really. Like I would like it if programming is more accessible and better for, pro for expert programmers. I would like it if people are able to make things like laser socks. I still think those are good and important. But for me anyway, they didn't really have the like grab. Like we all we have, you know, this this is in some ways the age of wonder. The we have these incredible things around us. Like we have supermarkets full of food. We're like really you know, pretty cheap food, all things considered. We have like amazing access to resources and plumbing and we have like this incredible entertainment and these amazing computers and yet it doesn't seem like we've made a real dent in human happiness uh so i wanted to work more directly on that so i left to explore a bunch of things and, and decided i want to be a therapist and that's actually one of the main things that i'm doing now to be a psycho psychotherapist yeah, fa fascinating pivot. Uh, my girlfriend and I like to say uh, like hard pivot whenever we like come up with a, a drastically different idea than we were thinking about. Um, so one phrase. So you use the phrase that like make a dent in the universe in terms of human happiness, and so that makes that like would lead me to believe that you don't or while you may want to do psychotherapy like on a, in a one on one basis, there's like maybe some sort of like a vague plan to scaling whatever you learn to achieve like large amounts of human happiness or creating a methodology or something, or, or am I putting words in your mouth? Are you, and trying to make a startup out of what you're doing? You're just trying to be a therapist for people one at a time. <laughs> um, 
I have some thoughts about that. Um, I realize this isn't exactly about the future of programming, so I'd be happy to go back soon, but just, just to <laughs> comment on that. Yes. Um, I think it's it's not it's worth not underestimating how important it is that one person has found some happiness. Like to them in this like one lifetime is actually, you know, it's the most important thing to that person to be happier. I think that's what, you know, we're all going for. And so I try and frame it instead of thinking in this very like industrial, like, you know, we've inherited a kind of scientific industrial idea that like we have to scale all of our efforts to many different people. And I think that's important and true in a lot of ways, but I also, and I'd like to do that. I don't know how to do that exactly for something so um, individual as therapy yet. I'm planning on working on it, but I also want to say that, you know, one person's happiness is actually quite important and not incidentally that one person being happy affects everyone around them in very, very concrete ways. They're not even that subtle a lot of the times. And there's like a kind of wave that happens. Um, so that is my answer to, or part of my answer to, um, totally. Question. And, and I'm totally with you. Um, I just, just to kind of follow up, I just want to check. Do you have any vague sense of scaling? Like, I, I don't mean to say like, to, to like, as if I didn't hear what you said, I understand that helping one person do being, being a teacher or, or a psychologist has an enormous impact on the world. Um, just knowing, um, you um i was wondering if you had just if you had any hopes or vague sense of of some sort of take over i don't know something yeah i do okay (laughs) yeah i i I Um, want to um bring happiness to everyone that i can or help people find happiness maybe it's another way of saying that and I would like to do that, you know, I, I can't do that just by talking one-on-one with people. So I'd like to put an eye towards, or at least like some of my effort towards figuring out ways to help more people. Like one idea just to give you is to work as a kind of in-house therapist for organizations, maybe as a consultant exact or like something like that maybe organizational therapist or something like that, which is a person helping the organization to achieve better results, just like a therapist does for an individual and also working kind of individually with the people in organizations. So I think Mm. organizations are like the place of adult learning in our society, the kind of most common place, just like schools are for children. I think the workplace environment can be a space of the primary space of adult learning. And so I'd like to help cultivate a culture of, you know, a growth culture or a personal growth culture within organizations. Mm. Cool. Yeah. That's fascinating. Um, 
I, I watched the first episode episode of the TV show Billions, and I think there was a um, organizational psychologist in that show. It seemed like a fascinating job. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I have not yet done much with it. Um, yeah, totally. Um, okay, so to bring it back to programming, um, I wanted to give you uh, so the space to say uh, like what you liked and didn't like about Dynamic Land and how it points to the future of programming. If you had a few, like some some summer, summarized thoughts about that before we talk about one other thing. Okay. Um, Dynamic Land. I am really happy that Dynamic Land exists. I think it's great work and it's really worth doing. I'm really happy that Brett and the team have found the space to do that. Personally, my heart goes out to them and I wish them, I wish that the funding was easier. I've heard that it's hard to get funding for, you know, it's like such a unusual kind of space that I, my understanding is that they're looking for funding a lot of the times. Uh, so I would really like that organization to keep continuing to do their thing because I think Brett is brilliant. The team is brilliant. And I think it has a lot to say. I don't know if it has a lot to say about the future of programming necessarily. I think, I think a lot of interesting programming things will come out of it. Um, like they, the team has been quite interested for a while now in making languages that are more like physical languages that sit on a table as opposed to code that is on a screen. And they also invented like a kind of operating system that is pretty amazing, real talk. Um, that is kind of like an operating system kind of protocol, maybe programming language-ish kind of thing. Um, so I could imagine lots of interesting programming um, innovations coming out of just the team iterating and working on creating the next versions of real talk and dynamic land. Um, and this, this feels a little, uh, I'll, I'll say that something I worry about or wonder about is the technology at dynamic land being matched up with the ideals of dynamic land. Like, I think Brett in particular has had an emphasis on um, artists and inventors and scientists. And I think in Dynamic Land that shifted a bit in order to be more about everyday people, accessibility, making sure that the, the community can be involved. Um, I think that's really important for programming in particular. Um, but I do wonder about the the kind of like what exactly is the technology at Dynamic Land good for in some sense? Like what kinds of human experiences does it facilitate? Is it just things like laser socks? Is it things like, you know, uh, spreadsheets or business plans? Is it things like community organizing? Um, is it things like political intervention, things like teaching, um, like lecture style. Like I have all these questions about kind of how it's going to 
um, spread into the human world. Uh, but I'm more just excited to see where that goes. I don't know where that's going, and I hope it goes someplace good. Yeah, totally. Me too. Um, cool. So the last thing I want to talk about is uh, your current project. You mentioned that you're working on an interactive visualization of a, a library that you built. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's just the so, most yeah. current thing that I'm working on. I started while well, working at the Recurse Center for one of their week-long batches uh, in New York City, which I highly recommend. That place is awesome. Uh, everyone there was really cool, and it was a nice space to work, kind of head down and just work on a thing for a week. Um, so, yeah, I'm working on this representation of a... Uh, JavaScript library that I ported to JavaScript from Python like uh, five years or something ago. And I've never quite understood how it worked, even though I ported it. And yet it still kind of works. But every time I have to try, I try and fix it, like uh, fix a bug that someone reports, I keep like, running into like, wait, what is this doing? How is this laid out? Like, why is this doing, why is this code doing it this way? What will happen if I do this kind of thing different? And that's me, the maintainer of the library. And <laughs> so I can only assume that anyone who tries to like understand how this code works is running into even more issues. And I think this is a big problem is that for a lot of open source software, it's open source in the kind of, you can see the code, but you don't really have insight into like how the designers of the library were thinking about it, unless they have stellar documentation, but that's kind of its own separate thing. And it's basically just hard to read code and understand like what a thing is doing and why it's doing it the way it's doing it. And so- the, Totally yeah. agreed. I feel like there's like, there need, I, I'm kind of working on an essay about this exact thing like code is open source but who cares nobody can understand it yeah and it's useful like it, people do stuff with it but like as soon as you run into problems with the library it's just like looking into the code is a mess uh yeah there's just a huge number of problems with it so i'm trying to make a representation of this library that's like a little bit of an interactive explanation but kind of shows the internal workings of the library kind of like a uh, instead of like a black box, I think of like a clear box or something like the library is its own kind hmm. of um, artifact, like its own separate thing. But within that, it has its own internal workings. And so I'm trying to just evoke those um, internal workings and really allow someone who like doesn't know anything about how this library works, not only to understand what, understand what the library does, but how it does it and the different like how the different parameters work because this library has like some parameters that you can tweak that changes the behavior of the library you kind of can't really understand what they're doing unless you see the internals because it's, it's based on a mathematical model of cosine similarity um, so basically it just explains a little bit of the mathematical model and then just shows in an both in a, these kinds of tables and interactive views, so you can change things around and see how it, cha how the behavior changes. Um, 
and there's lots of like pre-built examples that you can play around with uh, to understand what's doing. And it also looks like a fake, it looks like a GitHub page. I basically copied, like saved a copy of a GitHub page and then just modified the, uh, the kind of documentation part of the page because GitHub doesn't allow you to like embed JavaScript in the documentation. So I had to like fork off a page and it's, it's kind of like a cheeky, like, okay, I'm pretending this is GitHub, even though it's not, but like, this could be on GitHub. Like, what mm -hmm. if every library that you used had like some interactive uh, documentation or interactive representation that allowed you to like play around and see what data was flowing through the program and the author could maybe like add annotations being like, oh, and this is what I was thinking here and this kind of thing. Mm, the dream. Well, I think the final dream that this is pointing at is like, I, I want to start with a representation that is like me trying the best I can to explain how this thing works in the best possible way that I know how. And so it's very handcrafted. It's not automatically generated or something like that. But starting with at least one good example of a well-explained system, is it possible to get any lessons from that to be able to explain other systems with the hope that these things may just be automatically generated in the future or may become that the way that the programs are authored in the first place, working with a really mm -hmm. good representation of that system that's really human understandable instead of, you know, symbols and code. I stand corrected that you're correct. That, that what you just said, that is definitely a dream. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's my dream or at least something I'm trying to point at with this library. Totally. No, I have, I have the same dream. We, uh, we're, we're co-dreaming yeah. here. <laughs> awesome. Um, so, um, in terms of this and, uh, future work from flow sheets and the uh, flow sheets, SAS startup and, and it's, et cetera, uh, how should people follow you? What sort of ways are you interested in interacting with listeners of the podcast, et cetera? Oh, um, I'm on Twitter. My uh, Twitter is at Glench, G-L-E-N-C-H. Um, I'll post about um, random programming things that I do, including this representation I just showed. I also have a newsletter about the future of programming on Tiny Letter. And that's tinyletter.com slash flow sheets. And I'll post things about the different, that's the main kind of venue. I'll talk about the different prototypes and things I'm coming out with. Um, and my website is glench.com, glnch.com. And that's the kind of my repository of everything I've ever made. Uh, yeah, cool. and uh, I don't know when my SaaS startup, my um, uh, programming language startup is maybe another way of saying it. I don't know when the, that will be coming out with a thing, but hopefully hopefully before the end of the year. Are you, um, is there anything you're looking for, like investors, collaborators, employees, I, I don't know, uh, customer, like early customers, anything you're looking for, or is it too early? Um, that's a great question. Thank you for asking. Uh, no, I'm not really looking for anything at the moment. I'm 
in the middle of doing a lot of customer interviews and really trying to understand what people are, what kind of data manipulation tasks people are doing, um, especially in an automated way or wanting to be an automated way. So things like I want this data manipulation task to run every 15 minutes and email me if some certain conditions happen. So if anyone has any uh, tasks like that that they'd be interested in telling me about, I'd be happy to hear them. Cool. And people should get in touch with you via Twitter, email? Yeah, Twitter works and email. My, the email, my email is on my site. Cool. Great. Well, Glenn, it was a pleasure. Thanks so much for giving me so much of your time. This, yeah, this was awesome. Thanks for having me, Steve.